Why ordain women? Condensed from a presentation by Dr Tanya Whitwer to the Rhythms of Grace conference held in North Adelaide in 2019. Why ordain women? Because God calls them. It's as simple and as complicated as that. It's simple because God calls each person to serve God with the whole of their being and the entirety of their lives. Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 tell us that God calls to all kinds of service. Quoting, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are a variety of services, but the same Lord, and there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who activates all all of them, in everyone. Because our gifting is from God through the Holy Spirit, no matter what service we are called to, there is no calling that is better than any other. All types of service are higher callings, no matter how lowly they might seem in human eyes. Whatever the call, we are all part of the royal priesthood, God's own people, who proclaim the mighty acts of the one who called us out of darkness into God's marvellous light. That's from 1 Peter 2. For some, this call to service includes a call to a particular vocation or lifestyle or cause, which consequently involves a process of discernment of God's will in that call. It makes sense that just knowing feeling or sensing that we are called to something in particular may not be enough. Most vocations require more than the desire to follow them. Training and qualifications can be pursued, but not everyone has the personal characteristics or aptitude to benefit from the necessary education or training. Some people, women and men, have a vocational call to ministry as ordered by the Church. The inward reality of a call to public ministry may be recognised by others in outward signs, including a coincidence of the person's gifts with the needs of the Church. The quiet inkling of an internal call may move to a gentle nudge through the encouragement of family or friends, and from that nudge to clarity through the affirmation and, for some, a call issued by a congregation or other calling body. Ordination The idea of ordination makes the conversation a little more complicated. Ordination is the setting aside for pastoral service and responsibility those the Church considers to be called gifted for and trained in a particular set of schools, particularly the proclamation of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. Ultimately, the question about ordaining women is the same as the question, why ordain men? I confess to being quite confused when I read in one of the LCA's doctrinal statements that the office of public ministry was established by Christ and not the Church. I knew of nothing in the Gospels or Epistles that indicated Jesus instituted ordination. When I asked, 
I was pointed to verses in John 20, where Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That was John 20, verses 21 to 23. Some commentators have thought these verses reflect an early Christian ordination rite. Certainly here the gifting of the Spirit is seen to be very personal, and our ordination services reflect this. But biblical scholarship generally discusses these verses in relation to the mission of the whole church. Peace given as a sign of the new life, new creation in Christ Jesus. The church charged with its mission and empowered for that mission. And provision for the continuity of Jesus' mission of grace, with the church having a responsibility to execute God's divine will of forgiveness. We all share in the ministry of reconciliation. We all play a part in seeing others come to believe in Jesus and what he discloses about God and God's grace. Rather than being the institution of ordained ministry, Matthew 28 and John 20 do have certain features of existing ordination practice based on tradition. The word ordination doesn't appear in the New Testament, but people were selected for particular leadership roles. Lots were cast to replace Judas, and seven people were selected for practical service. They were commissioned with prayer and the laying on of hands, reflecting an Old Testament ritual of ordination, where authority was passed from one to another. Following Saul's unique call and early ministry, Barnabas took him to the apostles and, quoting, after fasting and prayer, they laid hands on them and sent them off. That's from Acts 13, verse 3. There are other examples of people being selected for service, and we can infer the idea and ritual of ordination from references like these in the New Testament. The Lutheran Church continues to closely link ordination to the call of the congregation, and the confessional documents highlight call rather than ordination. The ministry of teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments exists so that people might come to faith and for the sake of good order. No one should teach publicly in the church or administer the sacraments unless properly called, the Augsburg Confession says. The LCA's Theses of Agreement is the document signed between the two synods that joined together in 1966 to become the Lutheran Church of Australia. Regarding the office of the ministry, it repeats this line about teaching publicly from the Augsburg Confession and then goes on. The Lord calls individuals into the office of the ministry through the Christian congregations. Acts 13, 1-4 and the Christian congregation, either alone or together with other congregations or through properly appointed representatives, calls qualified persons into the office of the ministry publicly to exercise the functions 
of this office. In one of our confessional documents, Melanchthon reminds us that ordination traditionally followed the selection by the people of a pastor, with ordination being nothing more than the confirmation of that selection by the laying on of hands. We would add it also includes our prayer for continuing guidance. Lutheran congregations have chosen to be part of the LCANZ, and this is a voluntary association where the congregations ask the church to attend to matters of appropriate qualification for ministry and ordination. But the confessions, which have a stronger hold on us than that voluntary association or the civil document that is the constitution of the LCANZ, emphasise that it is still the divine right of congregations to call and subsequently ordain. Melanchthon argues that the pattern of a bishop having responsibility for ordination and any ritual beyond the laying on of hands and prayer is by human authority only. The Bible and the Ordination of Women In the LCANZ we expect that a decision regarding the ordination of women will be based on scripture. One of the reasons that the debate has continued as long as it has is that the Bible is not a handbook on how to be church. The Bible is a library of books in different voices with different contexts and concerns, but together recording how people have understood their encounter with the living God. It was crucial to Luther that, quoting, the Bible is a voice of revelation not to be confused with, encumbered by, or contained in any human categories of interpretation that make the voice more coherent, domesticated, or palatable. End of quote. Another important thing we learned from Luther is that the words of the Bible become scripture, our sacred document for guidance and inspiration, when the community gathers and discusses and acts in response to the claim that within those pages God is revealed and that God's self gifts us with the Spirit to help us see God so revealed. Much of the conversation within the LCANZ regarding the ordination of women has focused on two New Testament texts. It has been framed this way because these two texts from 1 Corinthians 14 verses 34 and 35 and 1 Timothy 2 verses 11 to 14 appear in the Theses of Agreement 6.11 being used specifically to exclude the ordination of women. But that is not how Lutherans develop theology or doctrine or even church practice. Continuing to examine just two verses is more like eisegesis or proof texting rather than the church seeking to be faithful to God in its action in the world. Eisegesis is using selected texts to support a pre-existing belief. The core of Lutheran theology is God's free gift of grace and therefore the core element of a Lutheran approach to hermeneutics that is, interpretation, is to read and interpret the Bible in the light of God's free gift of grace. 
Our emphasis on God's grace keeps reminding us that none of us is capable of saving ourselves. None of us can do or be anything that makes us closer to God or God's righteousness. A clear implication of this is that there is no biblical reason to differentiate between categories or groups of people. We are reconciled with God through Christ and all have been given the ministry of reconciliation. You can see that in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18. Turning particularly to gender as a category, you may recall Acts 2, 16-18, where Peter gives an interpretation of the Pentecost event. And I'm quoting, This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. End of quote. The accomplishment at Pentecost of Joel's proleptic vision is reinforced by Paul's words. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. From Galatians 3.28 Here the words of Genesis 1 verse 27 are echoed and remind us that all of humanity is created in the image of God and all of humanity is commissioned to care for the world. Being male or female is no advantage or disadvantage in relation to God and others. In other words, it's spiritually neutral. Galatians 3.28 assists us to recognise that patriarchy is part of the sinful distortion of God's creation. Genesis 3.16 names it this way, with one of the descriptive phrases of the damaging effect of sin on human life being that, quoting, He shall rule over you. End of quote. The egalitarianism of Joel and Acts and Galatians is not unique in scripture, but part of a movement within the biblical text towards inclusivity. The Hebrew scriptures take for granted that in society men are the visible authority structure. However, the creation accounts, particularly as seen through the lens of the New Testament theme of reconciliation, to which we will return, may be considered foundational when examining the relationship between men and women. In the priestly account, Adam is created in the image of God, male and female, Genesis 1.27. Equal man and woman were called into being by the Creator. Together they are blessed and together they are charged with stewardship of the earth. Verse 28. The older, second, creation account situates the creation of the woman and the man in a relationship context. Quoting, It is not good that the man, or the human, 
should be alone. I will make a helper as his partner. That was Genesis 2 verse 18. There's no implication of power imbalance in the term helper. Elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, God is presented as a helper of humans. The equality of the partners in this helping relationship is underscored. Male and female are, quoting, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That was Genesis 2.23. They have the same strengths and the same weaknesses. We need to step back to see the thread of God's liberating mission in the Hebrew scripture in order to apply the principle of interpreting it through the lens of the gospel. Rather than looking at discrete stories or personalities, the overarching view gives a clearer framework for how to consider the place of women. As one Old Testament scholar puts it, this overarching view retains a place for the weakness and vulnerability of all humanity before God's unique mystery and power. God typically sides with the oppressed and against the powerful. Oppressors are frequently condemned, and there are statements of intended redemptive outcomes from oppression and suffering for all the world. Turning to the New Testament, Jesus is not recorded as saying anything specifically regarding women beyond his protests about the exploitation of widows. Rather than any specific words, the major themes of Jesus' message and actions can be used to gain a picture of what the early church remembered or chose to pass on regarding Jesus and women. He joins the prophets in proclamation of vindication of the poor and oppressed in the coming reign of God. The inclusive graciousness and goodness of God is illustrated repeatedly in the parables. Jesus turns the messianic image from that of a triumphant king to that of a servant. Jesus tells us we should not use the same language for God and humanity in such a way as to risk endorsing human hierarchies and the oppression that goes with them. Instead, our relationship to God removes hierarchical relationships and brings us into family as brothers and sisters serving each other. In stories of Jesus' healing and saving interventions, women are often representative of people that have no honour within the society. He challenges societal privilege and male domination when he notices, listens to and speaks to them and responds to their needs. Jesus included women in his apostolic community. There are multiple places in the Gospels where we hear of women who, unchaperoned, follow Jesus, witness key events in his life, and provide for Jesus and his followers. The women are both married and single from a range of life situations. It seems most likely that Jesus viewed and treated these women as disciples. We are told of the depth of relationship Jesus had with both women and men. According to Matthew, Mark and John, women were the ones to whom Jesus first appeared after the resurrection. And in Luke 24, they are among those charged by Jesus 
to be witnesses to the resurrection and forgiveness of sins. Together, these bits and pieces build a picture of Jesus' respect and regard for women as well as for men. The early church remembered the proclamation of the resurrection by women, and in the early congregations we see the active ministry of women such as Priscilla, Junia and Philip's daughters. Acts applies the word for disciples to both men and women. It is apparent that Paul supported the leadership of women. Women prayed and prophesied in public worship. Phoebe is called a deacon and patron of the church. Clearly, gender is not an issue in bearing God's image, in being baptised and receiving the Holy Spirit, in discipleship, prophecy or proclamation. Using a gospel lens for interpreting the New Testament means taking a forward-looking perspective. The new heart and new spirit promised in the Hebrew Scriptures is consummated in the Christ event. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, From now on we regard no one from a human point of view. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. The passage goes on to speak of our ministry of reconciliation in the light of the reconciliation God offers through Christ. Paul critiques his culture's patriarchal worldview because it does not support or reflect the gospel message of new life in Christ, of forgiveness of sins and fullness of life through the Holy Spirit. Pauline scholar Lynn Kohick summarises his gospel message like this. Because of his great love, God, in Christ, renews and restores all creation, including humanity. God shows no favouritism, and Paul's understanding of being in Christ relativises all human cultures. God makes every believer a new person in Christ, and together they make a new community we call the Church, or the Body of Christ. Believers should think and act today in line with the values of God's promise and truth. These theological truths challenge the social hierarchy that assigned people positions of worth and value. End of quote. Troublesome Texts so what about those troublesome texts? In the interpretation of any scriptural text for what it might say regarding our life together, we are seeking to be faithful to God and God's mission. We can best do this when we view specific texts against the background of the larger themes of scripture and particularly through a gospel lens. All of the texts used against the ordination of women assume a subordinate position of women in creation. The God that we worship and acknowledge as the creator of all remains engaged deeply and relationally in the continuing creation of the world. God's promised future is the reconciliation and transformation of all creation. And while the transformed and redeemed world is not yet fully realised, as far as is possible, we live the values of this promised future. 
There is no room within this transformed creation for one gender to be excluded from particular types of service within the church. It is a strange thing that in acknowledging the equality of all people, society is leading the church when according to the New Testament that change in relationship was inherent in our baptism. To exclude women from the altar and pulpit is a scandal in a society that is moving towards acceptance of humanity in its diversity. It is a reason for people to reject the gospel we seek to share. It harms the faith of those who know a God who cherishes all of humanity. Many have been marginalised within and others have left the church over this scandal. It brings confusion to women and girls about whether they are truly created in God's image. Because metaphor works both ways, when we don't challenge the maleness of the language we use about God, it has implications for an imbalance of power between men and women in the church and the society it seeks to influence, and its impact on the sin of domestic violence. Why ordain women? For good order within the church. That the church may live out Christianity's inclusiveness. That the range of gifts God gives find their appropriate expression. That the culture of the institution might be healed. God has gifted the church with leaders so that the gospel may be preached. The well-being of the church and the well-being of the faithful will be enhanced when the barriers to full inclusion in the church crumble. Why ordain women? Because God calls them. Dr Tanya Whitwer lectures in homiletics and other pastoral and research topics with the Adelaide College of Divinity having previously served congregations of the LCANZ as a lay worker and a ministry associate, as chaplain to tertiary students and in various roles within community service, the environmental sector, population health and academia. <laughs>